Hey listeners, this is Sam. I just wanted to welcome you to our first episode of this kind. It is going to be part of our Director's Focus series. Every 10 episodes, we're going to focus on one director's career and talk about many of their films. Though we recorded this about a month in advance, we thought this would be the perfect time to release our episode about the career of M. Night Shyamalan as he has a new film in theaters this week. Also, if you enjoy what we've done so far, we would love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That would really help get the word out about the podcast and help us keep the lights on here. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the show, and now a word from one of our podcasting partners. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Welcome back to The Conversations. I'm Max. And I'm Sam. And today we will be discussing the first four films... By M. Night Shyamalan. With maybe some passing references to the later films, too. But very special episode. Our first uh, spotlight on one director's career. That's right. What a strange choice. (laughs) Is it, though? I feel like he's a name that a lot of people uh, would know. I mean, he's sort of an auteur. Well, I'm sure I know a lot of people who would maybe gasp at calling him an auteur. (laughs) But I also know a lot of people who don't know things about movies and who would definitely know his name regardless. Okay, well, let's just get in. I'm going to just latch on to something you said. Do you think he's an auteur? From these four films that we're discussing, I want to say yes. If his career had ended as literally there as it does figuratively in my mind, (laughs) no question. But... The fact that he made more films after that makes it difficult. Yeah. But still true, I think, to say. So, to begin at the beginning, um, The Sixth Sense. So, The Sixth Sense came out in 1999. Yep. Stars Bruce Willis and a young Haley Joel Osment. Yep. And he had made some short films before this, some student films, but, I mean, this was his first major studio production. Right. And it was a really big hit. Yeah. This guy came out of nowhere, and uh, everyone went and saw this movie. It kind of became a sort of pop culture phenomenon. So, I mean, what do you think of it? How many times have you seen it? I've only seen it once. Okay. Um, But it was actually fairly recently. For years, I purposely did not see it, because when it came out, I wanted to, and then someone told me how it ended, and I thought, why bother? Right. Uh, Then I actually saw it, and I was kind of impressed. I felt like 
I was surprisingly, it was advantageous to already know that Bruce Willis was dead, mm-hmm. getting to know that the first time I saw it. And I think it's still an interesting film, even already knowing the twist. Yeah. Well, because you've got to think on a project like that, I mean, he and everybody involved already knew the twist. So they still had to create something that's solid with that knowledge in mind. Right. Or else it would only be good for one viewing. Which is something that I think is too easy to forget after one viewing. Yeah. Because then, you know, just like I thought, not having even seen it yet, I know the end. What's the point? Um, I think a lot of people saw it and thought, oh, what a twist, what a twist. (laughs) And then they thought, well, okay, that's it. It's just a twist. It's not a good movie. Yeah. But I think... I think in the years since, people have really come to respect it for, like, everything but the twist. I mean, it's a good film aside from that. It is. And here we are defending it. Right. Um, so what is it What is it about this movie? What, what, what magic did he capture? Well, for one, he gets a really good um, a child actor performance, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, I think impressive. Yeah. Um, and he consistently does that in his movies. That's true. Lots of kids. <laughs> Great performances. Uh, and there's... I think he he handles atmosphere well, mm-hmm. at least in these four films. I think since then, he's... I, I don't know what's happened exactly. Maybe having more money has something to do with it. But I mean, yeah. the fact that Bruce Willis was in his first movie also makes me think maybe it doesn't. But somehow he's lost this sort of knack for really good atmosphere and uh, being able to push tension in interesting ways, not showing things outright. Mm-hmm. Like, as you mentioned, um, before we started recording. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. Um I have a couple notes about these very things that you brought up. Um, the first is that these early films of his, like The Sixth Sense, like Unbreakable, and like Signs, they all take place in kind of a recognizable, like, realistic world. I mean, The Sixth Sense takes place in Philadelphia. And do you know where Unbreakable takes place? Um, I think in the first shot it said Philadelphia. Okay, so yeah, and he's he's from Pennsylvania, so that makes sense, but... So obviously a world he could relate to. But gradually, as his career goes on, he transitions from a realistic setting into like an increasingly fantastic setting. And I wrote down here that like the emotionless gloss that you get in a movie like The Happening is kind of a function of its being a fantasy world rather than something real. I wouldn't even say emotionless, because I remember feeling a lot of emotions while seeing the happening. Yeah. But I think the problem is more that he's always had this kind of hammy, over-sentimental dealing with emotions. Yeah. And I think at the point of the happening is where that goes over the top past believability into something else. So I'm trying to think of other examples. I mean, did you think that the scene in the car in The Sixth Sense was kind of hammy, sentimental? Yes. Did you think that the scene of Mel Gibson talking to his son in Signs was hammy, sentimental? 
about the the night he was born. Yes, but that one works better for me. Okay. I think also a lot of these scenes we're talking about with the hammy emotionality, sentimentality, um, are not too well served by the scores. Yeah. There's not, like, great music in any of these films. There are some good tracks. There are some moments where the music works pretty well. You talked about how affecting that opening music from Signs yes. is. Yes, and I'll stand behind that one. Yeah. I like that song. But as an example, the song that's playing while Mel Gibson is talking to his son, it's it's always too sentimental. It's conventional trying to manipulate your emotions right. kind of music. And it's something about the pairing of the slightly weaker writing uh, in, already in the dialogue with that just <laughs> over-the-top hitting-you-on-the-head kind of music doesn't work. Yeah, if the writing isn't good enough, you have to sort of prop it up with the music. Right. Um, on the other hand, he has had plenty of moments with subpar writing, but the actors managed to pull it off anyway. Yeah. I think he does really well with his actors for the most part. Yeah, and that's that's a really important thing for a director to be able to get what he wants out of his actors, and he succeeds admirably in all of these. I mean, I think that Bruce Willis gives his best performances in these Shyamalan movies. I think Samuel L. Jackson gives one of his best. Um, Mel and Gibson. Mel Gibson gives his best. Yeah. And if Joaquin Phoenix hadn't gone on to have the incredible career that he's having, yep. I would say him too. Um, and another thing about that moment from Signs with that sentimental music mm -hmm. and speaking um, is that although we kind of took that out of context and it really was silly, I feel like in the context of watching the whole film, moments like that do work a little better too because Shyamalan uh, uses them, uh, juxtaposes them with things like the aliens trying to get into the house. Right. That is something cool about that. Yeah. Oh, I want to ask you about symbolism in his movies and... One thing we mentioned in our discussions before the podcast was uh, the use of red in The Sixth Sense. It keeps coming back. The doorknob to the basement that Bruce Willis can't open is red, and that's sort of the first sign that he's a ghost. He can't open the door. Um, the woman at the funeral for the little girl that like poisoned her stepdaughter, you know, everyone's wearing black because it's funeral, and she's in this bright red dress with bright red lipstick. Mm -hmm. Um there's the balloon that floats up towards the ceiling where the ghost is that's red. I guess my question is, um, he's hitting us over the head with this, but what does it does it mean? I mean, is it as simple as, like, red, blood, death, ghosts? Well, don't look now, but I don't really have an answer <laughs> okay. for you. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any ideas? I mean, help me. I mean, I... I think the most obvious answer is that it makes those things that he wants us to pay attention to pop okay. in the shot. Um, and as far as symbolism, I, Mask of the Red Death just seems like red and death are just always kind of, have always been connected. Yeah. Because uh, blood it, is a good reason. It seems that. like he has more kind of subtle symbolism in his later movies. Do you have any examples? Um, well, 9-11 in the village. But okay, yeah. <laughs> Which does also have a lot of really bright red. Yeah. 
But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Right. Let's let's move into Unbreakable. Okay. His second film. So Unbreakable uh, has these kind of. So Samuel L. Jackson is this completely like in a wheelchair, paper thin skin and like bones of glass kind of guy. Yeah. Super fragile, and uh, Bruce Willis is unbreakable. He's in a train wreck, and. Everybody dies except for him. There was one other survivor who then dies in an excellent long take as the doctor <laughs> is telling him what happened. Um, and it's the third long take in this film. Mm-hmm. So there's the opening shot. We've got the birth of Elijah, who is later played by Samuel L. Jackson. Yep. And uh, there's a cool thing where the shot starts in a mirror, comes out of the mirror, goes back into the mirror, comes out of the mirror, turns around away from the mirror, back into it, and it, he gets everything he needs in that one shot. Yep. And I think that's pretty cool. Then we have Bruce Willis on the train, yep. and we have the camera going, panning just left and right and left and right, uh, back and forth between Bruce Willis and a woman who comes sits next to him. And it's, it's shot between the seats in the row in front of them, almost like we're eavesdropping on them. Right. Uh, which is not too dissimilar from an opening shot in The Sixth Sense that you showed me, yep. where uh, the camera is just behind a wine rack, and um, the wife character comes out into the basement, walks up to the wine rack. We're kind of observing her through the shelves. Mm-hmm. It moves down with her and back up. Yeah, and I, I wondered in the context of that movie if it didn't have something to do with sort of you know spirits watching us, ghosts, but... Um, Unbreakable. And then in Unbreakable, uh, where we had the doctor talking to him, that's a, like a third long take, and then right after that we get another one, watching Bruce Willis go down the hall in slow motion to meet his family. Yep. With presumably all the other families whose relatives didn't survive. Right. And then who knows if we kept watching the whole thing may have been just long takes after that. Maybe Unbreakable is just all long takes. You should go check it out a little more in depth than we did. Yeah, to send be us sure. send us an email if you find out or comment on Facebook. But um, so some things about Unbreakable. One yeah. is that it's just a good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Tarantino loves this movie. Yep. Yeah. And I don't think he's wrong to. It's it's pretty cool. Um, and for the most part, I think it really nails kind of somber, like quiet. It's like almost to the point of absurdity how like quiet, calm, and collected this whole movie is while slowly pushing it towards this weird ending of, you know, uh, Samuel L. Jackson being this comic book obsessed guy who has figured it out. He's the supervillain and Bruce Willis is, has to be superhero and they are like the reasons for each other's existence and it i feel like i'd be tempted to call it a twist if i looked at in night Shyamalan as just the twist guy but i don't and so i don't consider it the twist but i do think it is an interesting surprising ending um and so it's got all these nice quiet moments and i think the cinematography reflects that well too and it all just kind of goes together well, with the exception of one scene where 
I think it's in a train station. Bruce Willis is walking around, and he can like, he's seeing something about all the people walking around. The yeah, train when station. he touches a person, he can see like the bad things they've done. Right, and so he's just kind of walking through, letting people hit his shoulders or whatever, and it's still a, a cool scene. Uh, but the music, once again, is just terrible. Bunch. This Bunch. awful beat that sounds just like that. That was an amazing... Uh, <laughs> that was amazing. I, I do my best. It, it just why? I wish we could go back and get someone to rescore these, at least these little moments like I this. think it's a product of the times, unfortunately. Maybe it is. You know, The Matrix had just come out and Fight Club and everything had to be cool back That's then. That's true. And <laughs> Fight Club. <laughs> And um, that's something. Uh, in the in the sixth sense, you mentioned uh, one thing that made it seem dated for you was when the shot of all the parents picking up their old cameras, yeah, filming the kids in the stage play. Um, and I guess it is. It does date it because of the cameras, but it's a cool shot because they all pick them up. There's these nice little moments I think sprinkled throughout where. There's a touch of absurdism, but yeah. because he just does it once or twice, it really works. You can really appreciate it without thinking it's hammy. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that he could just drop that into the center of such like a serious toned movie and Absolutely. not break it for us, but it worked. He's unbreakable. He's the unbreakable M. Night Shyamalan. He was unbreakable. He was. I guess he broke. <laughs> So marching forward in his career, <laughs> before he broke, there was also Signs. Oh, yes. Yeah. And before we go to Signs, or maybe as we're going into Signs, let's bring up um, Shyamalan cameos in his own films. Yeah. So he appears in every one of these films, and his other ones that we're not going to talk about. Um, to what purpose? It's a throwback to Hitchcock, because okay. Hitchcock was famous for doing that. Right. And I can see him very easily as wanting to emulate Hitchcock in right. a lot of ways. And I think it's as simple as that. Okay. <laughs> That's one take on it. Let me pitch you another one. Okay. Um, and the problem is that it's, I would say, virtually impossible to know how on purpose... It may or not may not be, and I've seen an interview with him where he says he originally wanted to be an actor, not a filmmaker, and that that's why he has those cameos. Huh? Um, you know, just write himself a role because yeah. he just wants to act. Uh, but I think each of the his appearances work well enough together to support the idea that he is kind of making a bit of commentary on the role of a director and or a writer on a film. Okay. And that by bringing himself into each of these, because they're always interesting roles. It's not like uh, he walks in and he walks out. Right, like, you see flowers. him through a window or something. Right, like Hitchcock's roles, right. which were pretty throwaway. It's just like being in there to be in there. Yeah. But in these, he's like, he's playing. So in The Sixth Sense... He's a doctor that's telling um, the mom mm -hmm. her son's got these strange, like, physical marks. 
something's happening to him. And the doctor figures this out right away because he's a doctor, of course. Uh, but so in the narrative of the film, the kid has these marks because of a ghost. Yeah. But by Shyamalan putting himself in the role of the doctor, telling the mother there's something weird going on, I think he's telling us, look at the sixth sense also as an allegory for child abuse. Or, oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just kind of <clears throat> parental negligence in certain ways. So the fact that he's the one delivering these lines is sort of the signal, hey, this is something you need to pay attention to? That's how it is for me anyway. Okay, interesting. But so then, I mean, it would be interesting if it was a one-time thing. But it, for me, it's fascinating because then in Unbreakable, he's the guy who's trying to get into like the, I think it's a baseball stadium, mm -hmm. and he's got a gun. And Bruce Willis figures this out because of his superpower, and he has to stop him. And it's weird because it's like he's just walking into the movie just to cause a problem for his character. Huh. And it's similar in signs. He's the guy who killed Mel Gibson's wife. Unintentionally. Accidentally. Unintentionally, <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting because, of course, he did intentionally kill the character. Right. By writing it that way. Um. And then in, just to touch on it briefly, The Village, he's the, like, uh, park ranger or whatever, uh -huh. just outside the village uh, boundaries, who knows that he's supposed to keep people out of there, but he doesn't know why. He doesn't know what's in there, yeah. and he doesn't know who this woman is, but he helps her. It's interesting that after these three or so maybe it's kind of like a sandwich. In The Sixth Sense, he's, like, trying to help pointing something out to the mom in the village he's helping Bryce Dallas Howard and then in these other two he's like directly causing problems for the characters however you mentioned one other thing that he does in signs which is give us the first indication that the aliens don't like water that's right so in that sense he's helping and he walks right in and a lot of people complain about the water in signs yeah they're like this is stupid. Well, it's another one of those, quote, twist endings. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think to look at the plot point or device or whatever you want to call it, that their weakness is water, is a twist, is just... He reveals it like a twist. It comes at the very end of the movie. It, it saves we... the main characters at the last moment <laughs> when all hope is lost. It's totally treated like a twist. Okay, so... And you can have good twists and bad twists. Of course. You can have ones that are really original, and then you can have ones that are derivative, and I think the problem with him is they started to seem derivative after he had done it over and over again. Well, even after he'd just done it once, because I don't think Unbreakable has a real twist. Well, you go through the whole movie thinking that Samuel L. Jackson is a good guy, and then he tells wow. he tells Bruce Willis, I think it's time we shook hands, and Bruce Willis shakes his ungloved hand for the first time and sees that he's been the one causing all this mayhem and killing people. That's a twist. Oh, that's right. Well, yeah. Okay, that's a case of me just forgetting. Okay, he's the twist guy. So, <laughs> moving on from the twists. But uh, that's a good one. It is a good one. <laughs> Uh, in Signs, okay, but complaining about the water thing in Signs, I yeah. think 
is a little silly because he himself walks in to tell us beforehand, <laughs> I think they, they're scared of water. They don't like it. Yeah. I mean, he just tells us. He's saying, hey, I'm the director. And if it, you're not paying attention to me. <laughs> exactly. And I think if you don't listen to that line or see that it's him giving us that on a plate, then I don't care if yeah. you want to call it a twist. And that's followed by that great scene where Mel Gibson goes into his house and there's the alien on the other side of the door that he's trying to see with the knife. Right. And then that ending of him screaming and uh-huh. the, the echoes into the corn stalks. I love signs. Yeah. No, it's a great Okay, movie. let's talk about signs. Okay. So... Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix, brothers living in this little isolated farmhouse in rural, probably Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Um, start having crop circles. And um, sort of everyone has a different explanation, mm-hmm. even though they've been happening all over, all over Pennsylvania, all over the U.S., all over the world. Yep. And it starts to get more and more frequent and... Uh, Such restraint in this movie, though, because even as we gradually come to find out they are aliens, it's so subtle. You never actually see what the alien ships look like. They're just these kind of glowing lights in the sky. You never see what the aliens look like in detail. With the exceptions of a few silhouettes, Mm -hmm. a hand and a leg here and there, and a lot of sounds. Yeah. It's great use of sounds, I think, in yeah. building tension in so many of the scenes. And it's just that, I mean, I was young when I first saw it, and that definitely has a lot to do with it, I think. But it still kind of creeps me out today. Yeah. You mentioned the opening credit sequence where you have this, like, circular light behind the titles while they're playing the creepy music, and... That sort of made me think of an older, like, 1950s alien invasion film. And then I guess that set the tone for me as we were watching clips because I I started noticing that trope over and over again, like the military guy with the Uncle Sam poster and the antique-looking lamp on his desk talking about the aliens doing a reconnaissance mission. Um, Their farmhouse looks very old-fashioned. And that military guy is just one of a bunch of colorful background characters yeah i think they're like really rich characters we just see them for you know one scene Uh, but everyone has their own idea about what's actually happening there's the guy in the bookstore who says it's all just a big ploy to show more and more soda commercials (laughs) right Uh, and then there's um like the girl in the pharmacy who wants to clear her conscience because maybe they're going to die from aliens. We don't know. But she wants to tell uh, her, like, atone for her sins to Mel Gibson, even though he's not a priest anymore. Yep. And, um, yeah. And Mel Gibson lost his faith when his wife died. And this whole movie is kind of about him getting his faith back. Right. And there's that great shot in the beginning where we see the where the cross used to be. Yep. And there's just the outline of it on the wall. Yep. And then at the very end, the last shot of the movie, the cross is back on the wall. Mm-hmm. I was going to say one other thing about the 1950s stuff and alien movie tropes. The one thing that gets me about the water is it's very similar to uh, <laughs> War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells. Yeah. Because what... Um, 
what brings those aliens down in the end is the fact that they can't tolerate like our water because it has microbes in it that kill them right. and they're not adapted to it. So, um, obviously a much less effective film by Steven Spielberg, but <laughs> I, I feel like it's that same sort of like, Oh, something that was here the whole time is going to come in and save everybody at the end. Which is not so crazy. It's not so crazy, but it just takes the character's agency out of it. They're alive at the end by dumb luck rather than through their own action. But well, I mean, whether it had been their own action or through dumb luck, I think the perspective of signs is <clears> that it's maybe, or the perspective that Mel Gibson adopts because of what happens is that it's a greater power looking oh, out for us. Yeah. Okay, so that makes sense. Rather than dumb Thematically, luck. yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Do you remember the leg in the cornstalks in the signs? That's the first glimpse you catch of one of the aliens. Yeah. yeah. That was surprisingly effective for just one leg <laughs> right. prop. And I remember seeing the the making of behind the scenes stuff, and, and that it was just a leg on a stick, not even a guy in a costume, you know. Yeah. And it still gets me. Yeah. And there's that great scene of the, there's a lot of information transmitted through televisions, mm-hmm. um, in all of these except the village for obvious reasons. Um, in the sixth sense, it was. What was it? Is there a TV in the sixth sense? Yeah, he uh, <clears throat> he comes in, and Bruce Willis' character, that is, comes into his house and sees that his wedding footage is on TV. That's and right. And sits down and watches it, because the yeah. woman, right as he's walking in, is saying, sit down. <laughs> um, Cole watches TV, the little boy played by Haley Joel Osment. I know he watches TV in The Sixth Sense. There were a couple other things that I'm not remembering, but yeah, he uses TV a lot. And then in the beginning of Unbreakable, we have um, Bruce Willis' son finds out about the train wreck because he's watching TV. Yep. And in Signs, it's just littered with scenes of people finding out new information about these aliens through TV. And that great scene of... Um, so Joaquin Phoenix takes the TV into the closet because stuff's starting to get too scary. Yeah. Mel Gibson comes home to this. It's like, what's going on? Uh, before Mel Gibson comes home, there's... Joaquin Phoenix watching the news about the aliens. And I think there's something being said here about kind of um, the way the media is always looking to scare us with the next big thing, you Mm -hmm. know, whether it's bird flu or aliens or a train wreck. It's just they're always there covering it, whatever it is. And if you're not careful, like, you're going to get sucked into that. Yeah. Um, But that bit where the news reporter saying... Oh, like viewer discretion is advised or whatever for you're about to see it's really shocking and then there's that alien at the like Mexican birthday party uh-huh. I think that's also just a really great bit of filmmaking yeah and it's amazing and Joaquin Phoenix's reaction to it just absolutely. adds to absolutely and the choice to shoot it on kind of low grade like tape or whatever it is yep. on a, and show it on a TV it's just so much more effective than I'm imagining now already, you know, kind of like the blockbuster version of that scene where we see the whole birthday in super high resolution. Right. There would be a little there would lit. be a little title card at the beginning saying yeah. like birthday party, LA <laughs> Alien sighting number two. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, it would be just like the happening was. But then we get to um, clearly seeing the alien in the ending scene of Signs. We see the one alien up Yeah, close. it's still sort of silhouetted. It it's, is, but people do complain about that that alien. CGI It, it looks alien. like a monkey. It's all CGI. <laughs> but even then, we get one shot uh, where we see him reflected in the TV over and over. Yeah. The turned off TV. That's right. That's really cool. Yep. Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly what he was getting at, but I could definitely tell by the way he shoots the TV that he's not particularly fond of it. (laughs) He thinks it's a negative influence Mm. in the same way as all those parents lifting up their camcorders at the school play. Mm -hmm. And maybe just this kind of idea that, um, and related to Shyamalan provoking uh, troublesome situations for his characters Mm -hmm. by stepping into these actual roles in the movies, um, maybe something about just, you know, like if you're creating something to scare people, like these news reports, it, I don't know, it can be dangerous. Yeah. Just a negative influence. Yet he's creating movies that are trying to scare people. But they always have a pretty, like, upbeat, resolved yeah. ending. They're wholesome. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. He's not looking to make you leave feeling bad. Right. Until you until, go see anything after Until the you saw the happening. That's right. Um, all right. We've mentioned it several times. The village. Well, before we go to the village, quick okay. question for you. Then. Yes. Why bother recording this podcast episode where we are singing the praises of just these four films if we agree that things after that are just not worth seeing? Um... I don't think you and I are totally in agreement about this because okay. I'm going to I'm going to tear into the village a little bit. But just the village? And, well, I would even defend that not not with a lot of vigor, but I will sort of defend Lady in the Water. Whoa, that's <laughs> not even what I thought I was asking. Uh <laughs> wow. But so, <laughs> um so what are you asking? My real question... Okay, you said we're not entirely in agreement. You're going to complain about the village. Right. But are the first three for you totally solid? Six Sense Unbreakable Signs. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think they're great movies. I think they're worth seeing. I think that they bear all the marks of a great director at the helm. So my question has always been what happened Good atmosphere <laughs> went away. That's, okay. He lost his handle on atmosphere somehow, I think. Okay. And with that, everything else. Everything else. Well, yeah, characterization. I, I stopped caring about his characters yeah. in the later movies. The and plots then, seemed hokey and ridiculous instead of, like, serious with some ham in there occasionally mm-hmm. to take you out of it. It's mm-hmm. like they just got totally hammy. And presumably, I mean, he had creative control on all of these, right? I mean, he wrote and directed these first three we've been talking about. Yeah. And then he wrote and directed the later ones. So it's coming out of the same creative mind. Mm-hmm. But what happened? Golly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the village. <laughs> so to answer your question, I mean, I think this is worth contemplating because those first movies are so great. And um, earlier when you mentioned the kind of that from after the village on, the they're not set in real worlds anymore so much as yeah. kind of 
hyper real, fantastical, Mm -hmm. whatever, alternate kind of worlds. Um, I think that brings up an interesting parallel between his career and Wes Anderson's. Um, Yes. I feel like we could do a whole episode on parallels and careers between Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, and M. Night Shyamalan. Wow. But we don't have time for all that. Our our four-hour episode. So let's hone it in for this one and look at Wes and Shyamalan. Um, I know that we talked about in our first episode of this podcast how a lot of people sort of don't relate to Wes Anderson's newer movies because they do seem more zany and kind of surreal. Right. And I have to say, I was in that camp until you sort of explained those films to me. And I have to admit, after our discussions, I have a greater appreciation for those. And that makes me feel good. (laughs) But on the other hand, I feel weird that it should need explaining to kind of get it. Yeah. Or to get into it. Well, I think that that's something that you get on an intuitive level that I don't and so where you don't need it explained I do you know what I mean I mean some films just appeal to you on a gut level yeah without even having to think about it and others take a little more work and it's different for every person like I think I think David Fincher for whatever reason I just like him better than you do now (laughs) I get it okay good example So, Wes and Shyamalan. Yeah. Um, So, on just kind of like a surface, weird parallel level, we've got... So, there's the the thing about more fantastical worlds, which they both did. Kind of at the same time. Uh, Lady in the Water was 2006, I believe. Yeah, mid to late 2000s. Which would be... um, I mean, Life Aquatic was 2003, and then Darjeeling Limited was 2007. Yeah. Which Darjeeling is still very real. Yeah. Uh, But then after that... I consider Darjeeling sort of the last of those films. A real, kind of realistic, more gritty... Yeah. Okay. Because he went went completely to the opposite end of the spectrum with with Mr. Fox after Darjeeling, yeah. True. Um, And then there's uh, these... There's a couple little instances of casting, like Bruce Willis uh, in The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, and then Moonrise Kingdom, and then uh, Olivia, and what was her name? Wasn't it Olivia Williams? That's right, Olivia Williams. Uh, Anyway, she's in The Sixth Sense, and then a couple years later, no, 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 the year before that, I'm sorry, Rushmore, Yeah. and then a year later, Sixth Sense. Yeah. Uh, and then I seem to remember another instance of that, but it's not coming to me. So it sounds like maybe Shyamalan saw Rushmore and that's maybe where he found that actress. I mean, cause I haven't, I hadn't seen her in anything before that. Right. Same. Um, but then, then it started to go the other way. Then it seemed like Wes Anderson was doing things that had sort of been, foreshadowed or influenced by Shyamalan's films. Right, and I I only have one piece of concrete evidence for this. Okay. But I think there's more we just don't know about directly. Uh, But on the Fantastic Mr. Fox audio commentary track, Wes does admit to uh, one particular little sequence being directly influenced by signs. Oh, wow. Where Fantastic Mr. Fox talks to his son just like Mel Gibson does to his son in that scene we were talking about. That's yeah. a little, 
over sentimental. Is it shot the same way? It's Is it in profile? Almost the same shot. Yeah. Wow. But with foxes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you, you'll see that soon enough. But. Well, that's a big piece of evidence, though. I mean, just knowing that, I think all the other things that we're speculating about, it's right. likely. Right. And there's that kind of what we now consider a trademark West shot of shooting like dead on into the camera, uh, into the actress' face. Yeah. Uh, them looking straight at the camera and completely centered in a wide shot. Um, there are a few instances of those in these Shyamalan films, particularly Signs. Yeah. So the village. So the village. Oh, last thing, Wes. Yes. Also, that play that we mentioned with the parents picking up their cameras. Oh, that's right. That really resembles sense. the Royal Tenenbaums um, kind of little animals in a play. Yeah, that sequence. Margot puts on. It's really similar. Uh-huh. And uh, once again, for context, Sixth Sense came out first. In that that's instance. right. Hmm. Anyway, so The Village. So The Village is set in rural Pennsylvania, <laughs> I think, we think. Probably. Probably. <laughs> and um, it's this little village. It's somewhere like maybe 1800. Yeah, we go through the first, like, eight-tenths of the movie thinking that it's taking place in a different time period. Right. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> At the end, there's a big old twist where Bryce Dallas Howard gets out of the woods. She has to go to, like, the city or whatever to get medicine for Joaquin Phoenix, who has been hurt by these monsters that are just outside the boundaries of this little village. And she makes it through the woods, through the monsters, because it turns out they aren't real. Yeah. Uh, they're a hoax. And she gets the medicine, but she's blind, so she does not see that actually they're living in 2004. Yeah. The year the movie came out, and Shyamalan, playing this park ranger guy, gets her her medicine. She goes back into the village, completely oblivious. She steals the medicine. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. Important addendum. Um, I've got one question. Okay. If these people are in the middle of a park in 2004 yeah. instead of a village in the 1800s, why do they never notice like planes flying overhead? Okay. The best answer I can give you, maybe it's a stretch to even try to defend something like that. The bottom line for me is I just don't really care. Uh, yeah, and I know that's kind of a low blow. It but is. If you're but gonna if it, you're gonna fair. make this film and make that the setting, right? Like, and if I'm gonna try to defend it, right? Um, I mean, I think if they had the money to start a village collectively between the people running it, yeah, uh, to to buy this land, start their village there, build these houses, get the park rangers to like be in on it and okay with all this build those monster costumes yeah i think they would have the means to maybe to either they had the means to just say like we'll buy this air airspace i don't know whatever don't fly through here this is ours right or they'd find a part of the country where there's already not any air traffic is probably right. more likely or maybe it's even already like a park regulation you know it's like it's a nature setting. 
they're out in the woods something to protect animals. I don't know. They can't fly too long. I've got another one for you. Um, you mentioned that this movie you think is an allegory for like the Bush administration and post 9-11 America. Well, we're mentioning that now for the first time on the right, podcast. But right, yeah. Um, I, I, one of the eerie things after 9-11 was that there were no planes in the sky. All planes were grounded. Well, there you go, answering <laughs> your own question. <laughs> I guess so. One other thing before we get into all that, though. Yeah. Um, so you never see this happen. You never actually see how the You village... never see it happening? Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. Unfortunately, I did. But you never see them actually setting up this village. I mean, you have to just sort of deduce by what's happened. Like, oh, these people all must have been living in the modern world, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they decided... Like, oh, life in the city is horrible. We're going to go start this commune and pretend it's 200 years ago yeah. and well, that raise our children here. Pretty and, clear. Yeah. Yeah. But you never see them actually going through with these machinations. Right. Um, I don't know. I guess I find that character motivation kind of strange. Like, I just don't buy the premise, maybe. Okay. And that's the first time that's happened in one of his movies for me. Okay. So... Well, I remember that basically it was the idea was these characters that started all this were at a place in their lives similar to where Mel Gibson is in Signs. Yeah. Something terrible happened to all of them, and it was a result of, well, unlike Mel Gibson in Signs, it was a result of their own life choices going down certain roads. They got in a really bad place. I think most, if not all of them, lost someone really close to them. Yeah. And they just kind of... They were a support group, even, if I remember correctly. Could be wrong, but I, I remember them... They all met through some sort of support group, like Alcoholics Anonymous or like or a grief, grieving thing. 9-11 families. There you go. A grieving thing. Um, but so, yeah, they're just kind of all... They've had it with the modern world and its trappings, maybe like televisions. No, I think televisions more like, and camcorders, more like <laughs> drugs and like murderers, whatever, uh, led them to just kind of think, let's try to go back to a simpler time. Yeah. And I think that's something a lot of people could relate to if they could get over the twist. Well, but to keep, okay, to keep, to take him on his own terms and keep going with this, it's like, what he seems to be saying, though, is like, yeah, you can try to go back to this simpler time, but people are still ruled by fear because they have to pretend that they're these monsters right outside the village. And, and it's true. And I, that reminds me, too, of what you said about the kind of throwback to the 50s stuff in mm -hmm. Signs. And just this idea of how people, and, you know, like uh, Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. Yeah. Which is the same kind of idea of always looking to the past and thinking, oh, times were simpler then, things were nicer, we didn't have iPhones, we didn't have big TVs. But, you know, we there were other problems associated with those times, and it's just looking backwards at those rose-colored glasses. So do you think that the general feeling after 9-11 was people wanting to go back to a simpler time and thinking that taking off our shoes at the airport and giving up our phone <laughs> records was going to do it, and maybe that's what he's critiquing? Sure, yeah. But, okay... If we're going to go there, can yeah. you can you point 
Specifics. Can you point out specific clues? Because this went okay. over my head. I wouldn't so, have even thought to associate these two things. The real thing that does it or did it for me is um, just sort of one wanting to create an Eden. So all of these mm-hmm. people have already been hurt. So they want to prevent that from ever happening. Yep. And by doing, like, to do that, they have to try and go back in time, which is not physically possible, by artificially constructing a world, like when you're making a film, building sets and stuff, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, kind of, they create this non-existent enemy to keep people, like, where they are. It's like, you know, curiosity killed the cat kind of idea that if someone got out of this village and realized the time they're actually living in, who who was born and raised in this village, they would go, whoa, you know, this is like insane, a whole nother world, look at all these cool things they have. Uh, they would leave the village, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Uh, but so these people being the older, wiser, whatever, having seen the evils of the world are making those decisions for them. And I think that's just like a government uh, deciding what needs to be kept secret is like too sensitive or evil for the general public to know. Yep. And, you know, just that idea of being a filter for the society. Um, we know better than you do what you need. Right. And demonizing an enemy that may or may not exist. Yeah. Interesting. So just that atmosphere of sort of fear and oppression. Right. And just kind of the timing that the village came out in, too. 2004. Yeah. Uh, so right at the end of um, George W. Bush's first... Uh, yeah, that would have been when the Iraq War was really ramping up, and right. people people were feeling it then. Also, when Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ came out, so he, <laughs> he, he went a different direction after Signs. <laughs> Wow. Or did he? I think maybe just the faith really got to him. Yeah. <laughs> he got oh. so into the role in Signs that he went on to make Passion of the Christ. Wow. It's the sequel, actually. It is. It's it's the prequel because it's way back before the aliens came. But anyway, does that, I mean, did I cover specifically enough for the village? Does it work for you? Does I it not work for you? I think it's possible. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced to... um, that it's, that Shyamalan did that on purpose. Right. Okay. Correct. You can read that into it, definitely, but. Which is true about a lot of movies. You can read things into it that may or may not have been. Which I think we do that a lot on this show. Oh, but... sure. But, uh. You know, there's a certain caliber of film that I think merits it, whether it's intentional or not, a lot yeah, of times. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would debate whether Shyamalan's films are of that caliber. I would, because when Definitely. you think about all the schmaltzy kind of sentimental stuff you were talking about, it feels like he wants us to take these as just stories about families. And, and I would, too, if not for the fact that he makes those appearances himself mm. in these films. And... I it just kind of the premise for the village too. I think is just p- pretty original. I can't think yeah. of a movie like the village. That's true. You've got me there. I think it's a good movie. It's pretty original, and it's smarter than most people want to give him credit for. Okay, that's that's all fair. I can't I can't argue with any of that. 
And it does make me want to see the movie again because I think my judgment might be based on one viewing kind of a long time ago. So, And I think that's how it is for a lot of people with most Shyamalan films. And it was, yeah, it was one of those deals, too. I remember how hyped it was mm -hmm. before it was released, and then it Big came out, problem. and everyone was like, oh, it's another lame twist, and uh, that was it. That was its reputation, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, going from there... <laughs> so you want to touch on Lady in the Water? Let's touch on it. Okay. I mean, it's his most kind of childlike film. I mean, it was based on a bedtime story he used to tell his child right. is that right yeah and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself i mean i think moonrise kingdom is kind of wes anderson's most childlike film mm -hmm. but much Again. more mature and a different well but lady in the water also does have these kind of really surprising moments of violence if i remember correctly yeah like it does werewolf it gets kind dark. Of creature well and you remember the werewolf tears apart the film critic yeah <laughs> Also, who does Shyamalan play in Lady in the Water? Good question. Should have done my homework on this be, one. I'm sure he's in there, though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wasn't he a guy who like who makes up the whole story that is the film? Is that right? I don't know, but I that's my vague recollection of it from many years ago. Yeah. And again, only seeing it once. So there's this sort of narrative within the narrative that it's this fable that starts to come true as the movie progresses and it gets more and more fantastical and there is a lady in the water who's like, <laughs> she's kind of like a sprite or a fairy mm -hmm. played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah. And positives of that film, I remember liking Paul Giamatti. He got another good performance <laughs> out of a yeah. good actor. I yeah. mean... Sounds like we don't remember much about that film. Maybe, I honestly don't. Maybe it merits a second viewing. Possibly. <laughs> possibly. I just remember reading lots of bad reviews and then seeing it. Expectation. Uh, well, but I was convinced that it wouldn't be as bad as they were saying because I remembered reading a lot of bad reviews for The Village, too, yeah. and loving it. Um I have a feeling that you and I have learned a lot about film since that movie was released and that we probably would get a lot more out of it if we were to watch it today, but... Probably right. But... <laughs> remains to be seen. Well, and that gets less debatable as his career goes on. It's true. <laughs> it it's seem. absolutely true. And I remember seeing The Happening and thinking it was, like, again, not as bad as everyone said. And that... Um, I thought it was pretty ballsy when he has the guy open a door and just get shot right in the chest by a shotgun. I was genuinely shocked when that oh, happened. Oh, yeah, there are a lot of jarring moments. Well, I think there's something to be said for his ability to still jar us in, you know, 2008 when The Happening came out. Yeah. In the context of probably whatever was playing at the multiplex at the same time. Of just, like, numbing violence. Judged against the other stuff in the multiplex, I'm sure it was probably the better film, but judged against his catalog, it's just awful. I won't debate that. If it, yeah, if you're looking at it on the scale of Shyamalan, it's yeah. not... <laughs> on the scale of Shy to Amalan, it's pretty ah. Uh... I think it's down at sh Oh. In more way than one. Ooh. Yeah. Also not great performances no. from good actors. Mark Wahlberg and Zoe, Zoe Deschanel, Deschanel just wasted. Yeah. 
Bummer. Yeah, I just remember it leaving me totally cold. I mean, there were those shocking moments, but at the end of the thing, I was not like... It was just, huh. Yeah. I don't think there's any greater significance to be drawn from... Well, from, uh, and I mean, you know, he was trying to tell us, you know, this thing about uh, climate change and the trees are getting their revenge. Yeah. But it, it does go a little too fantastical to the point that everyone goes, oh, it's the trees. You right. Know? And <laughs> yeah. And then the heavy handed political. It is too heavy. <laughs> no questions. I mean, I, I liked it better when it was beneath the surface, like in the village. Absolutely. So, so now we've reached this point. Mm-hmm. What did happen to Shyamalan? What can, and so after the happening, we got the last Airbender. Yeah, yeah, uh, which, which I didn't I, see. I also didn't see, and then we had. He after started. Earth, yeah, he stopped getting. Uh, he stopped getting credited. They stopped marketing his movies as an M Night Shyamalan film. But they've started they again. Start, he has they? another one coming. Okay. I we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But. I don't know. Did he just get eaten up by the system? Because my impression is that his movies are getting bigger budget, mm-hmm. more Hollywood. Yeah. Which maybe was his goal all along. Maybe it happened as it went along. If he's this deep thinker and filmmaker that you think he is, well, like putting all this stuff into his films. The thing is, I don't think he's a deep thinker. I think he's a good filmmaker. Okay. Or was, at least. And I think that it kind of, as a byproduct of good filmmaking and interesting choices, we got some, like, some things under the surface that, again, may or may not have been intentional. Yeah. But either way, they're there. And for me, they make them even better films. Yep. But... And just the fact that neither of us even saw The Last Airbender or After Earth <laughs> yeah. says a lot, too. It's like, how is he even still making movies? How did the budgets keep getting bigger if people weren't going to see them? Anymore? Right. Well, you and I weren't going to see them. <laughs> someone may have been. Someone. But then, yeah. even then, you know, everybody goes to see them and then they come out complaining. Yeah. I don't know what they expected when they were complaining about the film Well, After that. Earth was a Will Smith vehicle. It was Will Smith and his son, okay. right? I mean, that yeah. that is going to sell tickets. Yeah. And maybe it's good. Yeah. It, I don't know. I will admit we're being a little unfair not having seen the movies. Definitely. <laughs> Super unfair. <laughs> Especially since these movies that we're trying to like kind of champion here also got some bad reviews. Right. So what we've learned today is we need to watch Lady in the Water again and then watch <laughs> The Last Airbender and watch After Earth. Well, maybe that's a little extreme. Uh, how about I'd be willing to give Lady in the Water another shot Kay. and then maybe see his new film. And he yeah. does have a, a new series out, too, that's... Oh. Directly influenced by Twin Peaks. Really? I think it's called Wayward Pines. Which uh, I it sounds seen, like it's influenced which you hadn't by Twin even Peaks. heard of. Yeah. So huh. maybe there's something there. I guess the bottom line of this episode is if you don't like any of these four films that we've specifically talked about, try one again. 
and make it signs. <laughs> Fair enough. And I will try the village again. Cool. And we will try Lady in the Water again. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe.